Coming up on the Money Beat podcast, a Trump trade, reflation, we look at the global bond markets with BlackRock's Stephen Cohen. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Money Beat podcast. This is Steve Grosser, Paul Vigna is out all week, so you're going to be stuck with me hosting. I'm joined in the studio here in New York with Ben Eisen and Sarah Krause, and we have a special guest today, Steve Cohen. He's a managing director and global head of fixed income beta um, at BlackRock. Hi, Stephen. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. And I have to say, just right off the bat, I appreciate how you spell your first name with a PH. It's the correct way of spelling. I did it just for you. Well, Sarah, Sarah, I know you have strong feelings about I do, the H. about having an H at the end of yeah. Sarah, but I, I wasn't sure that Grosser was going to bring this to the podcast, I, I, these I, strong views on name spelling. You know, I already brought up you know, your inability to know the difference between a run and a home run Ugh, on the last I'll one. I'll never so, um, <laughs> Too the, much time in the UK. I yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's not my fault. Yeah. Although she did spend her childhood growing up with a father watching the Yankees. Oh, my gosh. It's, Let's talk about fixed income ETFs. Yes, let's talk about that. Um, so look, one of the things that I think was very interesting in, in one of the reports you guys sent, your outlook, was you talk about the fact that we've had a switch from the Fed. In the last few years, we've been talking about the Fed, the Fed, the Fed, and now it's much more about Trump policies. And I know for all our listeners at the, on the podcast, <laughs> that is what the podcast has been. We talked about the Fed for, I think, four years, and now we're talking all about Trump policies. But how does that infect, uh, impact, I guess, investors and the decisions they're making now that the focus has turned to uh, Trump policies? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it is one of the big kind of background themes to markets, which is this idea that for the last four years, probably longer, actually, um, the central banks have been kind of the only game in town. And that, that actually, particularly the ability of governments to do anything really proactive in terms of fiscal policy or fiscal stimulus has been very, very limited by um, the kind of the post-crisis environment, the feeling around austerity. And, and you've seen that in the US. You saw that in the UK, definitely. Uh, and you've absolutely seen that across, across Europe. Yeah, Germany. Uh, exactly. And I think that has determined pretty much um, the whole kind of landscape of, of, of investing. So, you know, you buy the central bank kind of um, uh, easing trades, um, which obviously has been very, very positive over for four or five years for, for government bonds kind of being the, the primary. Uh, it's been very positive for things like peripheral debt in Europe, um, which, again, is a central bank kind of trade. Uh, it's been very positive for credit, whereby you just have... Uh, kind of lower and lower yields, and that has really allowed government, uh, corporates uh, to take advantage of that um, in issuing debt and obviously then in, and, and uh, led to a lot of uh, investor buying. So I think that is one of the big shifts. So, you know, in our view has been that actually equities, which have benefited from the QE trade as well over the last four years, definitely benefit from any sort of kind of more structural reflation. Um, and I think you've seen that over the last uh, over the last kind of three to four months, um, and that as you start to expand beyond um, just the U.S. or just the Trump trade into more of a kind of a global expansion, which is 
we're seeing signs of now that actually going outside the U.S. equities has been one of the big, uh, kind of, in our view, one of the, the, the big opportunities for investors uh, as you look out. Uh, for fixed income, it's actually interestingly been very similar themes. So even though we have arguably moved away from kind of just focusing on, well, we've kind of changed direction in terms of, 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 of central banks and the Fed, um, and we focused more on, on the politics. Yes, you know, it has a big impact on government bonds because of the potential for more fiscal stimulus, and what does that mean for kind of long-end yields? Uh, but if you look at things like uh, credit, um, that's actually been pre- you know, fairly, um, it's going to continue the trends that we've seen over the last few years. So it hasn't had a huge impact so far. I mean, I think that's interesting that, um, you know, you've had years of low interest rates, which have really boosted the the high-grade corporate credit market, and now you have rates starting to rise, and the credit market's still doing really well. You have, even though you have these these sort of shifting themes, you're, uh, you really have a lot of the same market dynamics. I mean, what would, I mean, given that, what, what would it take to put a dent in this market? It really seems like it's been kind of held up under all conditions. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, so, what, what what would it take to change the direction of U.S. credit? I think that you would have to have a shock at this stage. So, I think you know, two two things going to change the uh, the kind of credit environment. One is you just reach the end of the cycle, and and bearing in mind this is a very very long cycle. Yeah. You know, average cycles are like six seven years. You know, we're into year eight nine pretty soon. So this is a long cycle, but obviously, you know, it's it's been extended by what's happened with central banks, and, and that's one of the things that we have to watch. Um, it is an unusual cycle um, because it clearly has been a very, very kind of slow fundamental uh, recovery, um, but a very positive environment for corporates who effectively kind of deleveraged and then have taken advantage of, of all of the impact of, of low interest rates and, and QE. So um, I think you'd need to see a change that, and we don't necessarily see signs at the moment even though it is long in the tooth, that that's coming uh, in, in, in the very, very short term. Uh, you know, the metrics still look reasonably good for, for credit. Um, or you see, I think, a shock factor coming from monetary policy. Uh, and again, so far, although we have gone from kind of pricing, um, uh, you know, the Fed, which, again, 18 months ago, we probably saw, you know, we saw one hike, then we saw nothing, then we saw another hike. We're now into what we think is more of a um, traditional hiking cycle in terms of you know potentially one hike a quarter or, or something like that. Um, so it's actually more of a cycle than than just one offs. Um, but I think you you know the market has taken that in its in its stride, and you haven't seen a huge um, kind of impact in 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 fixed income in general from that. So I think for credit, you would need to see something much, much faster, a feeling that the Fed was significantly behind the curve on inflation and needed to go very aggressively. That would change the dynamics, I think, for credit. Can, well, oh, sorry. Oh, no, I was no, say, no, could no. you talk a little bit about how um, the sort of investor reaction to the Trump presidency has changed from the beginning of last year to the early months of this year? Um, we talked a little bit offline about emerging market mm. debt, but t- tell us a little bit about how investors are sort of getting their arms around the potential policy outlook under the new president. Yeah, so I think that uh, I think for fixed income, uh, some of the themes have been the same. So we just talked about credit um, mm-hmm. that has been pretty consistent through late last year into this year. Um, I think if you look at tips and inflation, you know that has been a theme that has been running actually prior to the Trump uh, Trump victory um, that investors have have been uh, buying into. I think emerging market debt uh, you just mentioned, you know, that has been something that has shifted a little bit. I think uh, around November and December, a lot of concern that actually what does what does a Trump presidency actually mean for emerging markets? Um, you know, is there going to be more protectionism? Uh, what does it mean? You know, do you get a much stronger dollar? You know, these are things that don't tend to be uh, conducive to a strong emerging markets environment. I think we have shifted a little bit now to the point whereby, yes, the dollar was strong. 
strong, um, but actually it's tempered it a little bit. Um, some of the rhetoric around kind of protectionism and trade impact has definitely uh, tempered a lot. Um, and actually, if anything, the focus on political risk has been elsewhere, i.e. Europe, than mm-hmm. emerging markets. So outside of specific idiosyncratic cases like South Africa and what's happening there, it's actually been fairly stable. That, is, that has been a pretty good environment. And we've seen a lot of money coming into emerging market debt uh, over the last three months, primarily in the kind of more hard currency, the, you know, the dollar external debt. Um, but again, even, even in uh, some of the local currency uh, debt, investors are buying into it. Uh, I think for stocks, one of the shifts is that, you know, the initial three, four months post-Trump uh, uh, election was very much, you know, by U.S. Mm-hmm. I think we're now starting to see a rotation and say, okay, you know, U.S. has had a very, very strong run. You're starting to see better data out of, you know, Europe. Europe's looking a little bit better now. Uh, Japan. So actually thinking about kind of going more international in terms of uh, equities. Where have you seen investors putting their money, I guess, you know, in the first quarter? And how did that sort of change over the first quarter? And like, I guess, like, you know, in last month of mm. March, how did that change from early on, I guess, in the quarter? Because it was pretty strong heading into the year, right? I mean, yeah. February was record flows across the piece, um, yeah. right, for ETFs broadly. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, if you look if you look globally, I mean, U.S. equities have been outstanding. Uh, mm. it, it's been uh, it's been quite incredible, actually, the, the, the volume of flows the first three months of the year. Um, if you look at our markets in fixed income, some of the trends we've talked about, I think um, a huge amount of money going into dollar investment grade credit. And I think mm. partly that is. Uh, you know, domestic investors, you know, looking for yield. I mean, again, with this backup in treasuries, yields actually on some of this on on credit, they look pretty pretty interesting. Um, if you're an offshore investor, uh, particularly a European investor, then actually you combine that with you know the dollar strength or the you know the, the dollar positioning in a portfolio, and actually that's a pretty good place to be. So that has been a big uh, a big big trend. Now you're starting to see money going into European equities. So that has started to evolve as we've gone through through the quarter. Um, emerging market debt has been pretty consistent, but generally in March flows have tailed off a little bit. So we've had a lot more volatility in the last four or five weeks around risk appetite mm. than we did in January, February, which felt like it was kind of a straight line up. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about other ways that investors are using ETFs to sort of express a market view? I know that the options market, for example, and some um, fixed income ETFs even mm. ha- has really grown. What are you seeing in terms of how investors are trying to sort of use them as substitutes for other instruments or to express some of the views that they hold on on rates or um, policy? Uh, it's interesting. So, yeah, the, I mean, your your point around options is is a really interesting one. We've we're seeing the kind of growth of the ecosystem around ETFs, and what that means for investors, it just gives them more opportunities to do more with these products. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the if you look at the way people are using ETFs, um, there's clearly tactical asset allocation. You know, these are very liquid vehicles; they're very easy to use. Um, the growth of more strategic portfolios, model portfolios, is a huge growth area. Mm-hmm. Uh, more and more investors are using ETFs, whether they're interested institutional or, uh, or retail investors to build portfolios. So that building block concept. And then you think about the ecosystem around them. And I think options is a very good example where started really in the equity ETFs, the large equity ETFs. Mm-hmm. But now we started to see it in the, uh, in, particularly here in the US, uh, the US fixed income ETFs. Um, and, you know, it gives investors the ability to short markets if they, uh, if they want to. It gives investors the ability to obviously add a little bit of leverage to, you know, to positions if they want to. Um, and, I think it just it effectively brings in more different investor types, which is good because then you're getting more different flows, and that, I think that helps the liquidity of of what of what people are looking for in the products. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good place to take a break. We're with Stephen Cohen, managing director at BlackRock. We'll be right back. 
Robert Half Research indicates nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. Robert Half is here to help. Our recruiting professionals utilize our proprietary AI to connect businesses with highly skilled talent. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Love tech? Dig gadgets? Then make tech news briefing from the Wall Street Journal a part of your day. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Hello and welcome back, everyone. This is Stephen Grosser. Paul is on vacation. We're here with Stephen Cohen. He is the global head of fixed income beta at BlackRock. Um, and you can follow us. This is our little announcement. We've changed it around. But you can follow us on Twitter at WSJ Podcast. And you can share our shows with your friends. Follow us at Facebook.com slash WSJ Podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio. And just uh, just search for WSJ on any of these apps. Uh, got an Android device? Just search for WSJ on your Google Play Music app. Um, I wanted to get back and talk uh, with you, Stephen, just quickly about the outlook for inflation. Because, um, And I want to take sort of a global kind of perspective in this because I know in the U.S. you started – we've seen a pickup. I think the last – the Fed's preferred PCE just was at 2.1, mm-hmm. just above their, their sort of target rate. But we've seen a lot of the sort of sentiment around um, inflation be a little bit more mixed. You've seen, um, you know, the five-year, five-year break-evens. I think that's one of Ben's favorite uh, things to write about uh, come in. <laughs> yes, indeed. Five-year, five-year tells us so much. Um, <laughs> but you've seen that sort of come in. You see a little, like, sort of some of the outlook toward inflation come in as the sort of Trump trade has faded. Um, but globally, you know, we've seen the pickup in economic activity. Emerging markets are looking better. Europe is looking, um, you know, <laughs> you know, is bouncing back uh, well. And China looks pretty stable. How, what is the global view of inflation for, uh, for you guys? So I think that, um, you know, the, the inflation rebound um, was really focused in two places initially. One was the U.S., and I think what you were seeing in the U.S. was that you were seeing better kind of kind of inflation data, um, but what you've started to see is the wage data really picking up. You mentioned the PCE, so uh, yeah. you know, the Fed's favored uh, metric. I think that this idea that actually you can get an improvement in unemployment uh, and the labor metrics, and actually it can feed through to wage wage inflation, which has really been the the big big question mark for the U.S. for so many years. Um, I think that's the first thing. And then in the U.K., um, a lot of it obviously driven by you know the the um, post Brexit move in sterling, but it just has reawakened this sense that actually inflation can go up as well as down. Um, and and then you start to kind of go more broadly. Uh, and I think the two areas that are interesting to watch one is China. China has had. Um, you know, produce a price deflation for a very, very long time. And, you, you know, you've suddenly seen a rebound in that. Um, so you're seeing this kind of undercurrent of kind of inflation in, in, in China. Um, the second one is Europe. Europe has been completely dead from inflation for, for many, many years and uh, and not looking like it would uh, recover anytime soon. And 
Um, you know, clearly we're seeing a bit of better economic uh, data. Our unemployment's kind of coming down. Obviously, it was a big headline uh, today. Um, you know, you're seeing pretty strong, relatively strong data across uh, across the continent and, and, and even in places like Italy, which uh, have, have struggled. Um, and, and within that, you're starting to see inflation, kind of core inflation pick up. Now, it's quite small on a relative basis, and we're still quite a long way from the ECB's target. Um, but it's starting to kind of go in the right direction. I mean, I still think that you're going to have to see uh, a pretty significant economic recovery to get any meaningful inflation that would really worry the ECB uh, anytime soon. But it's enough to make just change people's perceptions of, of where markets are going. Um, and in particular, when you look at very long, uh, long dated expectations, so you mentioned five year, five year uh, here in the US, you know, if you look at kind of 10 year inflation expectations in Europe, I mean, they were pretty much there won't be any. Um, Ten years is quite a long time. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, that's an area where we have been uh, very involved, thinking that actually, uh, you know, it's an interesting place for investors from a risk-reward standpoint. And you're starting to see some of that kind of pick back up. So I, I, I don't believe in Europe that you're going to see um, a kind of a massive inflationary move, but it's enough just to, to th- at least throw off for now kind of the concerns about deflation. Um, and that has been a big concern for, for Europe. What, what do you sort of make of some of these expectation data? Um, perhaps they're not all that worrisome and they can be kind of volatile, but when you look at something like uh, the University of Michigan Survey of Consumer Inflation Expectations, which which uh, one of the measures continues to hit a record low um, in terms of the outlook for inflation, um, I mean, does that is that worrisome? Is that is that is that kind of foreboding of something on the horizon, or is that just something that we can kind of write off at the moment? I think it's difficult to say at the moment because I think that um, you know you're seeing you know when you look at some of these survey data, the question is do they lag or, or lead and mm. and do uh, I mean this has been a big discussion in Japan for so many years is, is do do expectation do consumer expectations become self reinforcing right. um, and actually it, it it stops the the kind of the real economy as it were yeah. um, picking them back up because people don't expect it therefore if they're expecting com- you know they, they change their behaviors to to adjust for it and then obviously companies change etc etc um and it's been um there's been there's been some evidence that that it, that that is that is the case but then um you know i think you can also argue at the moment where um you know you've not had that that's over a very very long period of time in somewhere like Japan and the US hasn't really been I mean you actually have not had any negative inflation here in the US I mean it's been you know it's still been positive right albeit small so I'm not sure that you've seen um, a situation that's been uh, consistent enough to to believe that um, it is self reinforcing so it could well be that what we might see on some of the survey data is actually that that starts to kind of pick back up if people start to feel if they believe in some of this reflation that is happening if they believe that you know through a Trump presidency or whatever else that Actually, you will start to see uh, things, um, you know, things improve. Uh, if they start to see wage growth, does that then feed through to their um, to their belief in where inflation expectations are going? So, I think the jury's still a little bit out in terms of kind of that lead lag uh, mm-hmm. element of some of these surveys, and that's where the data is pretty mixed. I was going to say, do you feel like we're also sort of in a, a bit of a holding period, maybe just this week, waiting for a jobs report coming up, waiting for earnings season to start? Do you feel like, you know, for investors, there's a bit of a, you know, how how good are things actually, mm. you know, and and what course are we on? I think that's right. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, you know the jobs data is is, is likely to be you know, reasonably. I mean, the, the, you know, the trend of the jobs data mm-hmm. is clearly good. Um, uh, that's been the case for for, for a very kind of considerable amount of time. Again, I, I think that the, the wage inflation data is the key thing around jobs rather than necessarily unemployment data or, 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 or payrolls, um, because that to me is the thing that, that was was always missing 18 months ago. You know, bear in mind we had 
you know huge drops in in unemployment 18 mm-hmm. months ago when everyone still thought that you know the economy would the economy was bad so um, I think that's the, the a key thing I think for equities earnings are, are really key because you know the are the kind of valuations you are at in US equities you need earnings to 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 pick up and that was the big scare what a year ago um, when you started to see earnings turn negative and you know you've companies have had an amazing period over the last seven eight years and they've been supported by pretty much everything that, that can support them you know the economy has not necessarily been great but it's been geared towards company earnings uh, there's been no wage inflation they've been able to raise incredibly cheap debt and do buybacks and and, and pay money back to shareholders through dividends you know it's all lined up it's um, all lined up and you know, that is starting to change you know, you know the, clearly the fed environment is changing Changing. Um, the wage inflation in environment potentially is changing, um, and, and that can have a knock-on effect in terms of margins, which is a, a big concern. So I think earnings are very important for U.S. stocks. I mean, one of the things I you know find interesting with earnings is from a, a price-earnings ratio. You know, looking for uh, forward price-earnings ratio. We were, I mean, I mean, I think we've come back now, but when we hit twenty-one thousand on the Dow, mm-hmm. I think uh, you know it was we were at. 10-year highs um, on that multiple. How much, and we all know that analysts, you know, uh, expectations for earnings sort of come in. So mm-hmm. that suggests that at 21,000 or, you know, um, you know to, uh, where we were on the S&P as well, that we are over, we are overvalued. We're pretty richly valued already. Mm-hmm. I mean, how much are, we, are you concerned about earnings ability and the, the global economy we have to really support without, um, you know, the, without the Fed, with the Fed tightening, mm. and if you don't get the policies for Trump, like, how much, is there a is concern that earnings might not be, even if they're strong, they might not be strong enough to, you know, so hold those valuations? I, I think for the U.S. market, you have to be, um, because I think valuations are high, um, and, uh, you know, the market has had a, a fantastic run over the last, particularly last, well, sort of many years now, but particularly last six months. Mm-hmm. And that has been driven by this kind of expectation of a, a new fiscal stimulus, uh, whether that is change in tax code or, or whatever it is, that, that, or infrastructure spending, whatever it is that drives it, um, and an expectation that the Fed, while, okay, we're moving into hiking mode, we're moving in a very nice and st- slow and steady way. And bearing in mind, I don't think it's so much the f- direction of the Fed, it's the pace of the Fed that, that really determines markets' reaction yeah. to, to things. So I think that you, again, you know, coming back to, you know, you've had many years of you know huge margins record margins uh, great activity in terms of buybacks and dividends i mean it all really has lined up for equities and they kind of arguably u.s equities went into overdrive yeah. the last six months so i think if you get any i think they are susceptible to any sense and we saw that a little bit in the last couple of weeks any sense that actually maybe some of this doesn't come, come through as quickly as we uh, as has been hoped or potentially that you know earnings may be maybe suffer a little bit I and mean, again the, the pickup in the global environment is good for earnings but if it comes with a stronger dollar, stronger wage growth, um, higher rates, then you know those are all margin compressors for U.S. companies. So um, I think when you combine all those things together, it's it's more of a nuanced picture than just an out and out. You know, better economic data equals you know great great environment for, for U.S. companies. I think if you look outside the U.S., you have a little bit more leeway. 
Um, like, again, Europe. I think Europe still has a lot of uh, a lot of risks to it in terms of political risks, albeit maybe some of that is softening a little bit. Um, but you have some pretty big events still this year. But underneath that, you have a market that actually isn't particularly expensive, um, where earnings actually are starting to social science pick up, the economy is yeah. picking up, and expectations generally are much, much lower. And, and Europe outperformed the U.S. in the first quarter. I mean, mm. the S&P had a good quarter, mm. up, I think, four, more than 4%, but the, I think uh, the, the stock 600 did better. I think that's, yeah, exactly. And, and I think um, I don't think investors are positioned as much for a, uh, again, come back to the flows we mentioned yeah, yeah. earlier on. Mm-hmm. Investors have been have positioned themselves for a U.S. rally and taken part in that. Um, I think if you look outside of the U.S., then, you know, there's 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 more arguably more conducive positioning in terms of the potential for people to reweight to 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 those markets. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good place to leave it. Thank you, Stephen Cohen, Managing Director at BlackRock. Uh, and come back uh, later this week. We'll have another podcast for you. Thanks a lot. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.